The Bible reading today will be from Malachi um, 3 and 4. Um, it is on page 1494 in the Black Bibles, if you're following along or on the screen. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, even do it, evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you, will see, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left out to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness 
will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the sole of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Thank you, Beck. Let's pray. Father, on this last Sunday before Christmas, when we remember your coming, uh, give us humble hearts that will listen to what you say and lives that want to get ready. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1972, Goff said it. In 2007, Kevin 07 said it. In 2008, Obama said it. In 2019, Bill Shorten and Jeremy Corbyn said it. It's time, it's time for change. It's said often enough that we listeners can yawn, can become just a little blasé, a little cynical. It's time for change, it's time for change. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Ask a young parent about a smelly, smelly toddler, they'll tell you it's time to change. Uh, we can be cynical, except for the whole issue of, guess, of climate change and the global push for peoples around the world to change. In the last few days, of course, this has become an issue we've felt, an issue, a burning issue, literally, uh, one that we've been impacted by. And there are stories to share. Uh, people here who've been spared, people here who've had to stay and defend their property, many who were evacuated, Everyone will have a story that touches them. Yet, we can still be cynical, can't we? I mean, we hear the message about climate change, but has it actually touched you enough for you to change the whole way you live? You know, for you to take up public transport instead of driving a car now? We think the government should do something, but we're cynical about changing ourselves. That level of cynicism towards this message, it's time to change, was also one that God's people held when God spoke through his prophet Malachi in the 5th century BC. It's time to change, says God. Really? Say the people. Yes. Um, Last week and this week we've been looking at the prophet Malachi and this has been the message. Now of all the times in the year you'd think surely Christmas time of all the times in the year, is the time to listen. Why? Because when when God actually did enter into our world, that was the message he preached, Jesus' first sermon. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, change, and believe in news. It's time for change. That's what God said when he turned up into the world. So of all the times in the year to take that message seriously, surely it's when we remember when the Lord first came. God's serious call to change. We need to listen because he actually said he's still coming. He came once, he'll come again. And, says Malachi, that next coming will burn like fire, something that's very prominent in our minds now. So let me ask you, when you hear the words, it's time for change, do you go, yes, yes, pass the cherries, or do you sit up and listen? 
In the book of Malachi, we need to listen to who is speaking to us. Uh, God reveals himself there as the Lord Almighty. Four times in six verses, we're told it's the Lord Almighty who's speaking. What does this mean? Lord, Yahweh, uh, God's personal name that he reveals in, when he makes a covenant relationship. It means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. It's hard to translate, but the idea is that there is no one higher than this one. He's not answerable to anyone. He's not defined by anyone. He is who he is. And he's, he's the ultimate. And then almighty, meaning of hosts. He's the Lord of hosts, Lord almighty, Lord of hosts. Hosts being the armies of heaven. The personal commander of the armies of heaven, the same armies which appeared on the night Jesus was born on hills outside of Bethlehem to shepherds announcing good news that a saviour has been born. The same armies that will appear on Jesus' second coming with the Lord Jesus himself to separate people um, and to save and punish. The Lord Almighty, the commander of those armies, is the one who's speaking to us. Uh, he's the one telling us it's time to change. Worth listening to. So, today is a wonderful day. Today is the last Sunday before Christmas. We come to hear the last words of God in the Old Testament, the very final words he spoke to his people before he then came into our world. That's worth hearing. His last message to the people before he came was this. It's time. It's time to change. Time to return to him. Chapter 3, verse 7. Have a look there. Return to me, he says. The reason is in the verse before, and that catches us. Return to me because, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. We think, what, is, what does that mean? Does that mean that God's really inflexible? He's just planned everything out. I, the Lord, do not change. In the Bible, God's changelessness doesn't refer him to being inflexible. It doesn't mean that God never changes his mind. It doesn't mean that God never personally hears and responds to our prayers. He does. Clearly, he does in the scriptures. In the Bible, God's changelessness refers to his consistency in character. So in contrast to people who are fickle, in his relationships, God is always consistent, whereas we change. And in this last book in the Old Testament, the Lord looks back on his relationship with Israel, on how he was to be Israel's God and they were to be his people and they were to keep their covenant. He says, well, in, in reviewing back, looking backwards in time, I, the Lord, haven't changed because I don't change because to falter in any covenant relationship would be to, to go against my character. I haven't changed, but you, verse 7, ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and haven't kept them. The story of God's people in the Old Testament was, was like one of a broken record with Israel walking away from God and being punished again and again and again. That repetition would be enough to grind down anyone and to ruin any relationship. The wonderful truth about God is though that God is personal and calls Judah to return, he is also almighty, he's different to us. So as whereas any of us would have given up on Judah long ago if we were God, the Lord is different. I, the Lord, do not change. What a wonderful God. Mighty and yet personal. And so he says to us through his prophet, return to me and I will return to you. I wonder what your, the year has been like between you and the Lord. Uh, maybe it seemed like 
God has walked away. Uh, Life can do that to you. It can make you feel like that. It is not true because God's not the sort who walks away from any covenant relationship he's entered into, whether that be a new covenant or an old one. And if we have wandered from him, can I say our knowing that God doesn't walk away gives us confidence to return. James says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Malachi, return to me, says the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. God says this to Judah, and in verse 7, Judah protests her innocence. How are we to return? As if to say, how are we to return when we haven't done anything wrong? You know, you tell me to change, what's there to change? Well, actually, there's been plenty to change. In chapter 1, there was the issue of dodgy sacrifices where people were offering a sacrifice that required no sacrifice of them because it was so paltry and the worst of what they had. In chapter 2, there were dodgy priests who hadn't decided in their hearts to honour God. We've skipped over a bit and there was a dodgy attitude to marriage, people divorcing at the drop of a hat to shack up with whoever they wanted to. And then there were people saying they had a dodgy God who wasn't being fair because his patience was unjust. Well, today, in this passage, God has two final issues to speak to us. He says, return to the Lord in two ways. First of all, stop robbing God. And secondly, stop believing that serving God is pointless. First of all, stop robbing God. Verse eight, will a man rob me? says the Lord, yet you rob me. How do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. What's he talking about? Within Israelite society, God had made provision for a temple and for priests funded by the population, tithing 10% of all their income as an offering to God. When the Israelites tithed the ho- uh, offered the whole of their tithe, the system worked very well. But God's issue is that the full tithe wasn't being offered, which means the priests weren't being provided for, which meant the temple wasn't functioning, sacrifices weren't being made. Now, of course, we don't have a temple system today because Jesus offered the one complete sacrifice which did away with that temple system. But at this time, God was saying, you're robbing me. You see, they had let down their covenant obligations. They had said that they'd fulfill those obligations. It was part of their relationship with God under the old covenant. But the reality was there was no love for God, no devotion to God, which made them give out of a glad and generous heart. There was no generosity of heart towards God, which meant, ironically, they were paying for it. Because in terms of the covenant, it was very clear. God said, if you obey in this, I will bless you with a staggering level of prosperity. Your children, overflowing flocks, rain for crops, overflowing barns. I will open the heavens, bless you from the storehouses of my bounty, if you obey. But if you don't, there will be covenantal curses set out within the covenant, which would come into effect. God would curse their land, curse their crops. And in their lives, this is exactly what was happening. You know, what, the, the one thing that's completely unique about the God of the Bible in the Old Testament times is if you compare um, sort of the terms of his covenant with other covenants that were around in other religions, and archaeologists have dug these up, the totally unique thing about the God of the Bible is that when the covenant was broken, he wrote into it a provision to return 
That's totally unique. Other religions didn't do this. And what a provision. Um, I don't think we took in the astounding nature of that provision in verses 10 to 12, because if we'd heard them right, we, we, would, have, we would have heard a collective gasp of amazement. But in verses 10 to 11, God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. In other words, the same blessings as if they'd obey. Verse 11, I will prevent pests from destroying, devouring your crops. The vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, that is, not drop, says the Lord Almighty, so the curse will be reversed, they'll be able to have fruitful vines. And then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. It's an astounding promise, right? If only they return to him. Now, what do we do with this promise? Um, these verses have been used today by many preachers to peddle a sort of prosperity theology, and it goes like this. God wants you to be rich, and the way you do it is to tithe one-tenth of your income to the church or to my particular organization, and then God promises to bless you financially. And the proof text that is often wheeled out is Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, test me in this and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much financial blessing, they put in that word financial, um, that you won't have enough room for it. Now, what do we do with this? It's a promise in the Bible. What do we do with it? You know, my theological side says that this is a genuine promise of God which needs to be believed, but we also need to understand it. My cynical side tells me I smell a rat with people who peddle this, but then I have to say, careful, am I just being cynical like the Israelites were and not taking God at his word? My pastoral side leaves me pretty angry with these sorts of people because I know that many poor people have actually done this and are left wanting and further impoverished and it makes a mockery of all the many millions of Christians around the world who are suffering and, um, and persecuted and it's just not true for their situation. It's offensive and insensitive. So what can be said? Three things. Number one. Context counts. You can't rip a promise made by God out of its context and simply apply it to us after Jesus has come as if these promises were written directly to us. Context counts. This promise was made to God's people, the Jewish people, after they had returned from exile in Babylon, Jewish people who lived under the old covenant, a covenant that none of us live under and none of us have ever lived under. There, uh, there are principles true in the promise which are true of God, but you can't just irresponsibly lift a promise from the Old Testament and apply it to us post-Christ without thinking about the difference that Christ's coming makes to that promise. Okay, so what do we do with this promise? In this case, the promise for blessing, material blessing, was tied to the God blessing the land. God's promise to bless the land was part of his earlier promise that he'd made centuries before to Abraham, to bless him, to bless his descendants, to bless the land. But the New Testament tells us that the land 
of Israel in the Old Testament was only ever a big picture pointing forward to the greater reality that's brought into it, in for us through Jesus, that is the kingdom of heaven. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate when he was being interrogated. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not the land. Jesus told us to, not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, that's the location of our material blessings. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Peter describes us, in 1 Peter, as aliens and strangers here while we are here now. So the promises about the land in the Old Testament point us to our real home in heaven, not to a physical plot of earth here, least of all, any plot of earth in Australia at the moment. Which means, secondly, the kingdom of God that we are part of is no longer tied to financial prosperity here or having a prosperous land. Now, if you are living in Australia, you have to realise that you are prosperous, you are blessed, you're in the top 1, 1.5% of the world's population in terms of wealth. We are insanely wealthy. We don't need to feel guilty about that. We can give thanks to God, but it's not because he's just decided uh, to bless only his people here. He's blessed the whole country of Australia with material wealth. But the kingdom of God is no longer tied to financial prosperity. In fact, when the Bible does speak about money, it's always with caution. Money is neither good nor evil, it's neutral. The problem is our hearts, okay? There is a danger of the love of money. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Paul said it's the love of money which is the root of all kinds of evil. On the other hand, God teaches us that money is useful. Um, you see, if money is neutral, if you have um, the love of money, a greedy heart, that can be destructive. If you have a generous heart, a heart that's generous towards God, it can be immensely useful. Um, it can provide for ourselves, it can provide for others. Uh, it can also have eternal benefit. Luke 16, the parable of the shrewd manager. You can write that down and look later. In the Bible, God commends generosity. Think of the widow at the temple who put in two small copper coins all she had to live on. Jesus um, applauded her. God promises to reward generosity by blessing generous people with more because he knows that they are the ones who will give it away. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly, that is, who isn't generous, will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows, generously, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Does God want us to be physically rich? Well, he does want us to be rich, but not necessarily in money. Point three, God wants us to be rich in the marks of being a citizen in his kingdom. Knowing that the kingdom of God now in New Testament times and, and further is different to the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God in the Old Testament is very physical, right? It was a physical land with physical blessings, okay? But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He wants us to be rich in the marks of being in the kingdom. Back then, it meant material wealth. If we were living in Old Testament times and Jewish, 
God would want us to be materially prosperous because the marks of being in that kingdom included God blessing the descendants of Abraham in the land of Israel with wealth. But because by, by faith in Christ we're part of a greater reality and looking forward to a new heavens and new earth, the marks of being in the kingdom now have changed. Now those marks are much more substantial than financial prosperity. They are the marks of faith. They are the marks of love and hope and joy and generosity which overflows amongst his people in abundance when God's spirit is at work in our lives. They're what God wants us to be rich in. And should finances blind us to them, God says, give your finances away, they don't count. What counts is that you have treasure in heaven. Okay, God says, you've robbed me. Well, how might we have robbed him? God wants us to be rich towards him, rich in the marks of the kingdom, rich in faith, rich in hope, rich in love, rich in service, rich in generosity, rich in what we bring towards God, what we offer to God. In your relationship with the Lord this year, have you been rich towards him? Would that be, would, would that be an adjective that describes you? I am a rich person. I'm rich towards God. Or meager, stingy. Do you give God the best of what you have? Do you delight in doing that? Or is what you offer God done with a bit of resentment? Money is a good test. Are we rich with money? Service is another. Are we rich with our time and serving one another? It's good to look back at the end of a year. Were you rich serving God when you were at work? Did you think, oh, this is how I get to serve God? Uh, were you rich in how you served at home? amongst your family or whoever you live with? Were you rich in how you studied, thinking I can honour the Lord with my mind? Were you rich in how you served or gave at church? You see, if we weren't, we're robbing him. If we were rich but the service we offered was stingy, we, we've also robbed him. God is calling us back and saying, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much faith, so much hope, so much love, so much joy into your lives that you, know, you won't feel like you can contain them. It's a paradox, isn't it? You give and you get so much more in return. It's the way of discipleship. It's time to change, says the Lord. What's there to change? First of all, stop robbing God. Give richly. Secondly, much briefer, stop believing that serving God is pointless. <laughs> Do you believe serving God is pointless? Do you look at what you've given this year and thought, well, what's the point? Stop believing that serving God is pointless. Verse 13, you've said harsh things about me, says the Lord, and yet you ask, what have we said against you? You've said it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? I think this argument cuts closer to us. God's people have been serving him. They feel like they have nothing to show for it. They feel ripped off. They feel embittered. They look around, verse 15, and then they see, look, it's the arrogant. It's the godless people who seem to make it in this life. They are the ones who prosper. They are the ones who we call blessed. The evildoers, not us. What happens if you've been serving the Lord, hoping for God to bless you then in some particular way, but it just hasn't materialized? And maybe 
Maybe that the problem is that you've only served God half-heartedly, like the Judeans, just going through the motions of service to God with their eye on what they could get, not what they could give. That's a recipe for becoming bitter. And yet, of course, we know when we're tired, when we're burnt out, when we're depressed, or if we've been hurt, sometimes there's not a lot of enthusiasm in giving and really you're just giving out of duty because that's all you've got left. What then? Well, for your encouragement, I want you to see what happens in heaven when people resolve to turn to God and serve him. And this is the Lord who wants to encourage you. Have a look, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and he heard. All right, now, not often in the Bible are we given a window into what happens in heaven when God's people respond. But here we are. Verse 16, a scroll of remembrance was written in the Lord's presence concerning those who feared the Lord and who honored his name. God records the names, the individual names of the people who repent. He doesn't necessarily reward them on earth, but he takes note. You know, you are not overlooked. He sees, and it matters to him. He cares. And then he makes a promise, verse 17. They, they will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. That will be a nice day. He says, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will see again the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve the Lord and those who don't. Those who repent, in other words, will be God's treasured possession on the day he draws a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Now, when is that day? It's not now. Now it's people who serve themselves who seem to get ahead. Now we live in a sort of mixed world of blessings and prosperity. Um, we might think now it's the godless who, or the people who care for only for themselves who seem to prosper. It's futile to serve the Lord. Now it's not the day of distinction. It's not the day when that's sorted out. When is this day? Last point. The perspective that changes everything is to see the day of distinction as the day of the Lord's coming. That day, chapter 4, verse 1, will burn like a furnace. And we don't need for that to be illustrated, do we? The Staffords are here. God mercifully preserved your property. But there were other people in the street who were not spared. Now there's a distinction. We feel so terribly for those who've lost things. By the way, I'm not suggesting that there is, they were ungodly and you, you aren't, and that's the reason for that. Um, but just to illustrate, that it, yesterday was a day of distinction. Well, there will come a day like that. It will burn like a furnace. Verse 1, all the arrogant, every evildoer will be like stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire says the Lord Almighty. This is hard. It will be a day of complete and utter judgment because we're told not a root or a branch will be left to them. Here's a picture of a fire so fierce. Can you imagine? It's not just the branches above the ground that are burnt, it's the roots below the ground that are also burnt. 
He says, on that day there'll be a distinction because verse two, for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and you will leap like lambs released from the stall. For you who revere my name, there's a perspective that changes everything. Know this about the day of judgment and we'll know that serving the Lord is not futile because though the, on that day, those who serve God will be distinguished from those who don't. So therefore it matters to serve God, to revere his name. Well, when will this day be? With these words, the Old Testament ends. The day of the Lord will be preceded by the coming of Elijah. The coming of one, you know, an Elijah. He will turn people's hearts. Should their hearts not be turned, God will come and strike the land of Israel with a full covenant curses once and for all. That's how the Old Testament ends. And then there's a 400 year gap. Is this talking about the day of judgment yet to come? Well, if you turn one page over from Malachi to Matthew's gospel, you see those verses fulfilled completely. You see John the Baptist coming dressed as Elijah, looking like Elijah, identified by Jesus as Elijah, urging the people of Israel to turn back to God. In fact, it's those who, who listen to John the Baptist who do turn, who later, when Jesus comes and begins preaching, they are the ones who believe. Those who refuse to listen to John, they don't believe. The ones who listen to John, who, who turn back to God, when the Lord turns up, they are the ones who believe. They are the first Christians. But for the vast majority of the Jews who didn't believe and chose to cling to their stingy and half-hearted offerings, at the very same time the gospel was expanding across the Roman Empire in AD 70, the Jews in Jerusalem, well, the covenant curses come true for them. They're destroyed in the great Jewish war with Rome as God brings down the curses of the covenant on them and their land. We know from the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman emperor Titus sowed salt through all the fields. He cut down all the trees. He burnt the temple to the ground. It's never been rebuilt. The land was never the same again. As terrible as that day was for the unrepentant Jews of Judea, and by the way, when the temple burnt, we're told that the, the, um, the fire was so fierce that the, the, the inside... Um, of the Holy of Holies, which was inlaid with gold. The gold melted and ran down between the, the cracks in the, in the remaining stones. And so the Roman soldiers came and ripped apart the stones to take out the gold. And Jesus' promise came true that you know, not one stone will be left. It was a terrible day. As terrible as that day was for the unrepentant Jews of Judea, imagine what the day of the Lord will be for the hundreds of millions of unrepentant people in the world. When Jesus began preaching to the Jews in his generation, he was serious, he was deadly serious. The time had come. He wasn't joking. It really was time to change. Their life and their eternity did, did depend on how they responded. And those that did listen and did revere God and did return to him, they became Christians and they were scattered from Jerusalem before the Jewish war. Those who didn't dug their heels in stayed and they were destroyed. That was the Jews in Jesus' day. But Jesus spoke about a universal day of judgment, a day of distinction between the righteous who will be saved and the wicked who will be destroyed. Jesus spoke about this. He spoke about it clearly and often. And every day that God delays his judgment in patience and grace means that we are one day closer now to that day arriving. 
We have had a lot of days of grace, but the time is ever shorter. And so the message becomes more urgent. The Lord is coming. His coming will mean burning like a furnace. It's time to repent. Do you need to repent? Now, it may be that you have never truly returned to God. You'll know if that's you. It may be that you've turned to God at some point before, but you've strayed in some secret area of your life thinking nobody knows. God knows. He knows. Friends, when people turn back to God, he may not bless your life immediately, but in heaven he takes note. And your attitude in turning to him will count on the day of the Lord. What is God saying? What is the spirit of the Lord saying to us today through Malachi? The time has come. The time is now. It's time to change. It's time to return to the Lord because the Lord is coming. Before Rachel comes and leads us in a prayer, I want us to pause and take time to be honest before God.